All right. Welcome back, everyone. I hope this song is, is almost becoming Pavlovian at this point. Uh, as soon as you hear Morning Mood, you immediately know shenanigans are on the horizon. Uh, and as we work our way through episode six of the Jackson Pollock series, all manner are there shenanigans in this episode. My name is Michael Anthony. This is Art Holes. You know the whole thing. Uh, let's jump right back into the story. No need to waste anybody's time. Uh, okay, so Peggy's reaction to Jackson's behavior, namely him drunkenly peeing in her fireplace. She actually didn't freak out right away. Uh, like everyone else in Jackson's life, she enabled him based on his potential. Peggy was super excited about marketing her new protege to uh, curators, dealers, buyers, other artists. Uh, this cowboy artist throwing himself into his art and the new face of American art. So she would schedule lunches and meetings with museum officials. And because we're dealing with post-prohibition, alcohol really was at the center of all social activities. Everyone was really excited to be able to drink out in the open. Uh, but Peggy immediately realized that the rumors about Jackson were true and the real extent to which alcohol was an issue for him, especially with strangers. Of which Peggy said, quote, He behaved like a pig and she stopped bringing him around and told him not to even show up at the gallery anymore. Which meant that after his last show, Jackson wasn't really allowed to be part of the, I guess you'd call it the grassroots sales and marketing and networking component of being an artist. And collectors in the press, they appeared to be coming around a little bit more. Clement Greenberg, that art critic, he really started to process more and more of what he saw at Jackson's show, and he immediately knew that Jackson could become the greatest painter the U.S. has ever produced. There were other artists in New York at the time who were really talented, like William de Koenig and Sebastian Gorski, but they weren't American. And in the midst of World War II, when patriotism was at an all-time high, having a cowboy from the West become a great artist, just like Putzel called it early on, was helping generate a real buzz for Jackson. The only problem was, people's immediate thought of American art was still Thomas Hart Benton and regionalism, and people couldn't get that regionalism style out of their minds. So when the press asked Jackson directly about his connection to Benton and work with regionalism, Jackson knew that he needed to distance himself, and he completely sold out Benton and said, quote, My work with Benton was important as something against which to react very strongly. You know, the guy who gave you your start, gave you personal attention, and whose wife you tried to straight up bone. But it wasn't just Benton that Jackson drifted from, though that one was definitely his fault. Jackson's success was beginning to push away his old friends. Uh, they thought that there was nobility in being a starving artist. Even Graham thought Jackson was being a sellout, and he walked away. So all of these artists were begging for success, but when one of them found it, all of a sudden they're part of the system. Which is, honestly, that's a little stupid. Everyone is acting like a bunch of salty assholes. The player haters ball gives us an opportunity to hate on a diverse array of mock-ass mocks, trick-ass mocks, punk bitches and skip scap skanks and scallywags. But Jackson wasn't really helping matters either. It was almost like he was pushing people away before they could do the same thing to him. One time he was, surprise, surprise, next level hammered and walked into his buddy Louis Ribak's studio. And there are so many of Jackson's artist friends in this story who are way more important, but whose names and side stories I had to cut out just because of time. If I included everything, we'd be here for like 16 hours. Reuben Kaddish, perfect example. Uh, one of Jackson's closest friends in New York was a guy named Reuben Kaddish. I guess Reuben becomes a pretty famous artist, but none of the stories about him stood out and he didn't really drive the story, so I haven't really included him so far. But for some reason, I really wanted to mention Louis Ribak by name. So anyway, Jackson drunkenly stumbled into his studio and told Louis that he needed to stop doing representational painting and to start painting with automatism and abstraction. And when Lewis disagreed, Jackson picked up a hammer and threatened to beat him to death with it. 
Look, you all get what this podcast is about now. If someone gets threatened with a hammer, that story is definitely being included. Anyway, the press was getting excited about Jackson and some other artists like his buddy Robert Motherwell, and Jackson's art began to sell. And while his paintings were selling, they weren't going for the price that he was hoping for, because don't forget he needed to pay off his $150 per month advance before he got any money from Peggy for his cut of the sales. So Jackson was getting a little upset that Peggy wasn't pushing his work harder, which Peggy thought was pretty rich, because he was not only being ungrateful and petulant, but Jackson was so drunk all the time that he wasn't exactly helping his own cause here either. But Jackson did have a point. Peggy wasn't really pushing Jackson's art. She would definitely do it during the shows, but it was, it was much easier to do live because people were there and prepared to spend money. After that, though, she just kind of held on to his paintings. Honestly, I don't think she knew how. It was an odd thing to sell. Nobody had ever seen anybody put all of themselves on canvas like this before. It was like asking somebody to pay for an album, and I'm not even sure that people buy music anymore, and I feel old as shit right now with this musty reference. Because back in my day, kids, we used to have to go to these things called malls, and we bought things called CDs. So it was like asking somebody to go buy a CD from Camelot Music or FYE at the mall, only all of the songs were various stages of someone's nervous breakdown just put to a beat. But you'd also have to spend a ton of money to get it. And while Peggy was having an issue with moving forward with Jackson professionally, she had less of an issue with moving things forward personally. When Peggy Guggenheim tried to have sex with Jackson Pollock, the most surprising thing to both him and Lee is that she waited so long. One of the problems I had with writing this episode and talking about Peggy sexually uh, was that in a lot of the books about her, there was a lot of, I would call it subtle slut-shaming. Because Peggy Guggenheim absolutely loved sex with pretty much everyone, and she especially loved men, and she didn't care if you were gay or straight. My two cents armchair psychological assessment here is that there was probably more of a sense of conquering gay men that maybe fed some of her self-worth issues. But even that sounds a little slut-shamey. The bottom line is Peggy loved to bone. Let's just leave it at that. And good for her. And one day she tried to bone Jackson. And this is early, like, 1944-ish, I think. And even after two years of consistent sex with Lee, Jackson was still a mess sexually, and for a woman who boasted constantly about her sexual conquest to the point of occasional bullshittery, Peggy said of the one time she tried to have sex with Jackson, it was, quote, very unsuccessful, which I feel like kind of stings for everyone involved. Instead of having sex, Jackson threw up in Peggy's bed, then peed the bed, then fell asleep, which sounds very unsuccessful. So around this time, Peggy was collecting men, and her apartment became sort of a party spot for, quote, a pandemonium of homosexuals. Here's the deal. We are deep into World War II at this point, so there are a crazy amount of men over the age of 18 that are in Europe and the Pacific fighting, most of whom were straight. Decades from now, we're going to be really embarrassed that gay people weren't allowed in the military for so long. It was a stupid homophobic policy that did nothing but hurt us. It was a bunch of morons who thought they would catch gay or some nonsense, or gay men couldn't contain themselves being around such handsome men in uniforms. Toot, jump in your suit, make a salute. Prior to the 1940s, men in the military who were accused of committing sodomy were court-martialed, discharged, or sent to prison. But because court-martialing took so much time and money, draft boards began to screen out gay people, or people who they just thought might be gay. And the military would issue these maybe gay men, quote, blue discharges. Called that because of the color of the paper that gay-related discharges were printed on. Gay people actually got their own color-coordinated discharges, which feels kinda gay. 
So when Jackson got deferred from World War II because he was such a hot mess, everyone saw a young, healthy, and I'm air quoting that one, artist, and they immediately assumed that he was gay. For someone who was very cautious about exploring that part of himself, that was a huge spotlight he didn't want. And a ton of male artists at the time were just assumed to be gay and blue discharged, along with, quote, hairdressers, dress and millinery, millinery make, I don't know what that is, millinery makers, designers, and interior decorators. So if you had one of those jobs, you weren't even valued enough to die for your country. But you could definitely go get super drunk at crazy parties at Peggy Guggenheim's apartment. Which is exactly where Jackson finally got to spend a lot of time around gay men and give this whole thing a test drive. And these parties were crazy. People were running around naked. Nothing and nobody was off limits. There were crazy orgy situations. Hell yeah, if you were forced to spend time in the Wild West in 1880s Ukraine in this series, you might as well be able to have some orgy stuff for a minute. And then the flirty, flirty guys with their flirty, flirty eyes. Jackson was mostly a spectator at these parties. Uh, with his crippling anxiety, it's very unlikely that he took part in anything. But he did disappear behind closed doors quite a bit uh, for, quote, free-for-alls of homosexual activity. And good for you guys. And the door was open now. Jackson was immersed in the gay subculture of the New York art community, and he could finally explore that part of himself, even if it wasn't best for his relationship with Lee. Everyone would hang out at George's Tavern on 7th Avenue, and by everyone, I mean everyone. Even Tennessee Williams hung out there a lot. There still weren't openly gay bars back then, but if you hung out at George's, everyone knew. It was a safe place. And it was safe enough and contained enough for Jackson to finally figure himself out sexually. But no matter who his partners were, men or women, Jackson still had crippling anxiety. And then you throw in being blackout drunk all the time and the impotency issues that we'll have to talk about in a bit, Jackson could only really be bottom when having sex with men. So this is kind of the routine that would happen, and we'll use Tennessee Williams' roommate as an example, who was a really little guy and one of Jackson's partners. He would wait until Jackson was, quote, loaded and defenseless, and then he would take him to him and uh, Tennessee Williams' apartment. And so that became Jackson's thing. It was the only way he experienced men. He liked little dudes, rustic little gnocchi just like Benton, and he liked being bottom. But he could only do it if he was really drunk. And that's totally cool, but the George's Tavern guys, they were kind of dicks about it, though. They would all laugh about it and swap Jackson stories. After he was with a man, Jackson would go into overdrive of just self-loathing and alcohol. He really couldn't handle or accept that part of himself. And with Jackson and alcohol, it's always good to, to remind ourselves and get a good frame of reference. So to conceptualize how much Jackson was drinking back then, uh, think of the most alcohol you've ever seen anyone drink, and now imagine that happening basically daily. And after these periods of depression, he would swing back up for days or weeks, you know, still getting super drunk, and he would run through the streets screaming at the top of his lungs, quote, I'm gonna fuck you all, I'm gonna fuck the world. And while we're on the topic of low periods followed by high periods, uh, there are probably some of you that are listening to this story and you've been screaming for me to acknowledge something. So let's talk about it now. There's a doctor named Alan Rothenberg. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. In the summer of 2001, he wrote an article called Bipolar Illness, Creativity, and Treatment for a journal called Psychiatric Quarterly. And one of the case studies that he used was our boy Jackson. And using notes from Jackson's therapists, including one that labeled him, quote, manic depressive, which was the old term for bipolar disorder, as well as Lee and friends and family's descriptions of Jackson's mood swings, Rothenberg believes it was very likely that Jackson Pollock had bipolar disorder, and, and probably severe bipolar disorder. 
And one of the worst things you can do with bipolar disorder is to drink heavily, which is what a lot of people do with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. They self-medicate with alcohol. And since alcohol is a depressant, it's incredibly counterproductive and dangerous. And I'm not saying self-medicate with cocaine, but drinking alcohol in excess apparently makes everything worse. So just keep that in mind for the rest of the story. One of the people who was aware of Jackson's behavior at this point was Lee, and she was not too thrilled about the debacle with Peggy and with all the men at George's Tavern. So in 1944, Lee decided to focus on herself, and she took up painting again. And Jackson did not really deal with that too well, and him and Lee would constantly get into screaming matches about art. Jackson referred to Lee one time as, quote, a good woman painter, which is just not cool. And it got so bad that they couldn't be in the same house together while they were working. And in June of that year, when things got really bad, Lee decided they needed to take a vacation. So they decided to spend some time that summer in Provincetown in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Which is, uh, okay, look, if you're upset at how much sex your boyfriend is having with other men, don't take him to P-Town, because P-Town is really gay. Even back then, it was in, like an art colony that was always way more welcoming of gay people. On top of the P-Town decision, Lee and Jackson didn't have a car, so Lee's old boyfriend, Igor Panduhoff, he drove Lee and Jackson to P-Town. And with Jackson's self-esteem issues, being around Igor, who was super rich, flashy, and worldly, you remember Igor, Jackson didn't really like Igor at all. And when they got to P-Town, they all stayed at Hans Hoffman's place, Lee's old mentor. Jackson and Hoffman, they didn't really get along that well, and they didn't agree on art at all. They would get into these debates about internal versus the external, and Hoffman would tell Jackson that he really needed to work from outside of himself, to work from nature, that way he'd have so much more to paint. And Jackson responded to that by saying, quote, I am nature. And this is a very famous Jackson Pollock quote, and we can't talk about exactly what it means until the very end of this series, because people didn't really know until, now, I'll shut up, but it's fucking mind-blowing. Things went okay for a while that summer. Uh, it was the change of scenery that Lee wanted and thought that was necessary to repair their relationship. But there were two people who eventually came out to the Cape that blew up the summer. The first was Howard Putzel. He came out to let them know that he was sick of Peggy's shit and that he quit her gallery, which was a huge problem because he was Jackson's most ardent supporter with Peggy. So this was eventually going to be a huge problem because Peggy was only tentatively on board to begin with, and now there's a looming shadow that once the summer is over, Peggy may likely drop Jackson and that kind of dampened things a bit. The other guest who dropped in unannounced on Jackson and Lee and changed the course of that summer was none other than Georgia's Tavern regular, Tennessee Williams. And Lee, having taken Jackson to P-Town to get away from his relationship with men, wasn't too thrilled. Before Tennessee Williams came out, Lee really had Jackson to herself. But now Jackson had a buddy, and they would disappear together most nights, usually ending up at the studio of a young artist named Julian Beck, just off of Commercial Street on Captain Jack's Wharf. And it was there that Jackson in Tennessee, and along with about eight or nine other guys, they would have these absolutely insane parties that included orgies on the balcony where other guests would just watch. So good thing Lee took Jackson away from George's. Living in the sunlight, loving in the moonlight, having a wonderful time. Of the parties, quote, it was very Parisian. One of the frequent party-goers, uh, who was friends with Tennessee Williams back at Harvard, was a dark-haired, light-eyed man named Bill Canastra, who, like Jackson, would get insanely drunk and become, quote, a wild man with a death wish. 
And Bill and Jackson, they took a liking to each other right away. So Jackson, Canastra, and Tennessee Williams, they would just wander around P-Town at night just having epic binges. Lee finally couldn't take it anymore, and she invited Jackson's entire family to the Cape to put a stop to this. Years later, his family sort of admitted that they all knew Jackson was bisexual. Sandy at one point said he was very concerned that Jackson was gay. And it was only when his entire family was there that Jackson finally stopped going out at night. Eventually, at the end of the summer, Tennessee Williams went back to Harvard, where he finished writing The Glass Menagerie, the play that made him famous. Bill Canastro went back to Harvard as well, and then he made his way to New York, when he got in a train, probably drunk, and leaned his head out of the window and was decapitated by a column. In the end, there can be only one. The fall and winter of 1944 through 1945, was, it was more of the same. Jackson was getting, quote, as drunk as he had ever been getting, to the point where he was getting kicked out of most bars he went to, and he was painting and putting on shows at Peggy's studio, but the paintings Jackson produced were more or less the same as the year before. And as critics were warming to Jackson, the one critic who just absolutely lavished praise on him was Clement Greenberg, who said that after Jackson's latest show, he was the strongest painter of his generation. With support like that, and because Jackson's paintings were at least making Peggy some money, she reluctantly agreed to double his monthly allotment to $300 in exchange for all of his paintings that year. That summer, Lee and Jackson spent a relatively uneventful few months in Long Island. Uh, Lee knew she had to get Jackson out of New York that summer, and she clearly knew that P-Town wasn't an option. So they went to Long Island with Reuben Kaddish and his wife Barbara, and the summer didn't exactly rescue their relationship, and Lee actually hated the slow country life, but at least Jackson was at least somewhat controllably drunk. And there was sort of a calmness and serenity that they had in Long Island, and Lee floated the idea, and Jackson eventually agreed that they should spend the fall and winter there. They eventually found a farmhouse on Fireplace Road in a town called Springs, which was near Emigansett, which is way far east on Long Island, kind of northeast of East Hampton. It was a two-story house with an old barn in back, and it was a rent-to-own situation, so they could stay there for six months, figure it out, and they had an option to buy at the end. So they took the deal and decided to move to Long Island. But before that, there was one more thing that Lee and Jackson needed to do. After three years of Lee refusing to marry Jackson, Lee demanded that they get married, and Jackson said, okay. Neither of them wanted their families there, Peggy refused to attend, and there was only one witness. And yes, Jackson was sober. And on October 25th, 1945, Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner were married. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Jackson then called Marvin slash Jay and his wife Alma to tell them that they were married, and they were completely surprised. I think it's interesting that Jackson called Marvin slash Jay first. Uh, here's my guess. I think Marvin slash Jay was most like Leroy. He was never an artist like Charles or Sandy. He always was a, a hands-in-the-dirt kind of guy, so it was never really competition for Jackson. So I think that call was the closest Jackson could get to calling his father for his approval. Alma would later say that both the marriage and move to Springs were so that Lee could have more control over Jackson, but I don't know that she meant that in a pejorative sense, because Jackson was legit out of control. And this is a turning point in our story. Uh, we're really going to be in the East Hampton, Long Island area from now on, and I know, it's very exciting. But it's not really East Hampton, which at least was kind of cool and diverse in a real town. Springs, on the other hand, was in the middle of nowhere and described as, quote, 
Inbred and Backward, a proud, petty, introverted community of fishermen and farmers held together by a dense thicket of intermarriage. It was a dilapidated country town with one bar called Jungle Pete's, and the locals had a weird Cockney accent and called themselves Bonnikers. And when Jackson and Lee moved into their house in November of 1945, they encountered a very unwelcome group of Bonnikers who didn't like outsiders or artists, and one of the worst winters in a decade. Which was great news for Lee, because not only did she have Jackson alone, but it was too cold for him to go to Jungle Pete's or to the store to buy alcohol. Jackson only had a bicycle too, they didn't have a car, so they were limited to being around the house a lot, and the house required a lot of fixing up. And in early 1946, Jackson needed to get ready for a show at Art of This Century, uh, but when the weather calmed down a bit, he was spending a lot more time at Jungle Pete's, and scariest of all to Lee, he was looking to buy a car. And for Jackson to spiral like this right before a show, that was a bad sign, because now they had a mortgage to pay. But as luck would have it, Stella came out to visit and see the house. And as soon as she got there, Jackson became like this cooing toddler. Lee couldn't figure out how Stella had such an effect on Jackson, especially because Lee thought Stella was, quote, an ignorant bore. One day during the visit, Jackson had a meltdown because Lee was wearing makeup, which is, uh, that's just weird, but whatever. So Stella made Jackson sit down next to her, and he laid his head on her shoulder, and she rocked him like a baby, and he calmed down. And everyone else in the room was speechless, probably because that's creepy as shit. But Stella's calming effect on Jackson also helped him relax enough to paint again, which he hadn't done since the move to Springs. It was also around this time that Lee decided that Long Island should be home, and it was in their best interest to stay there, even though she was a city girl. I think deep down, Lee knew that moving back to New York would be the end of her and Jackson. Which, honestly, I think would have been a good thing, but Lee wasn't really good at identifying poisonous relationships. So they leveraged Peggy Guggenheim to give them a, a personal loan, which they combined with a traditional bank loan, and they bought the house in Springs. The show in April went fine, uh, even though Jackson wasn't really doing anything new with his art. He, he kind of phoned this show in, which is, which is totally fair. He got married, they bought a house, you know, sometimes life gets in the way. The only real difference with this show was that critics were starting to come around and see what Clement Greenberg saw. I'll post a painting from this show, uh, it's called Circumcision. And Jackson painted and named it that because he wasn't circumcised, and it was one of the things about himself that he was most embarrassed of, and especially when he was around Stella. Because why wouldn't you think of your uncut penis every time you're around your mom? The main takeaway from the circumcision painting is that there really isn't a clear representational image here, and there's no central focus point in the painting. Last episode, we walked through the painting Guardians of the Secret, where there was at least a clearish image of dear sweet Jip, but even that's gone here. The thing about that spring that was even more important than his show at Art of This Century was it was Jackson's first country spring in like 20 years since the family left Jansville, California, which honestly feels like ages ago, uh, but it really lifted Jackson's spirit, and of course, I mean, he's a country western boy at heart. Him and Lee would take these long walks, and Jackson would explore, and they would garden and work on the house. And Jackson loved going to the beach and looking at the sand dunes, and then inland there were trees and marshes and flowers blooming and cranberries were ripening. This spring was very likely the most content Jackson had felt in his entire adult life. And he was basically turning his home into a farm, and Jackson probably wasn't aware of it, but he was reverting back to his childhood and trying to rebuild the safer version of what he had. 
He even adopted a stray dog that was part collie, and he named him, well, you know exactly what Jackson named him. He named the dog Jip. And if you thought I was being heavy-handed in the beginning of this series with all the Jip stuff, no, not at all. That's how much of a little boy who never grew up we're dealing with. So now we have Jip 2.0, which I have serious problems with. My dog growing up was a golden retriever named Moak, and when Moak died, we were all devastated. I still use Moak-related things as passwords for basically anything that requires a login. I would never even get another golden retriever, let alone name another dog Moak. I'm almost tearing up talking about him right now. I'll post a picture of Moak so you can see what I'm talking about. There will never be another Moak. So now Jackson owns a home, and there's stability there, which he never had as Leroy and Stella moved him around 118 times when he was a kid. He's sexually fulfilled with Lee, although I'm almost 100% positive that she was not sexually fulfilled in return. I mean, just from what we know about him, think of what sex with Jackson Pollock was like. Lee Krasner is a saint. And as everything was coming together for Jackson, his biggest problem was, I mean, well, besides the mental illness and issues with alcohol, was that the barn was too far away from the house to be used as a studio, especially when it got cold out. So with the help of a neighbor named Roger Wilcox, who we will definitely be talking more about at some point, they built a crazy wood support structure and a ramp, and they used a truck to move the barn to a place where it could be used effectively as a studio. And I'm realizing now that a story about moving a barn is probably the most boring thing to listen to, but it's crazy important. Because now Jackson has an enormous studio, which is just totally necessary for someone who uses such huge canvases. And it's one of the three critical components to Jackson's evolution as an artist moving forward. The second part was that Jackson had begun to lay canvases on the floor and paint that way. In the years prior, he would prop canvases up or use easels and then flip large canvases around on their sides. But by laying them on the ground, he could walk around them and paint from all angles. The only problem was the room he was using in the house was way too small. So now that the barn was available, he could lay the canvases on the floor and have as much room to walk around them as he wanted, no matter how large the canvases were. And the final piece of the puzzle was a visit from the art critic Clement Greenberg, who went out to the house in Springs and stayed for a weekend. Even though Clement was a huge supporter of Jackson, the two didn't really have much of a social relationship, mostly because Greenberg thought that artists were, quote, dumb and boring. Lee was actually the one who pushed for the friendship, which makes sense because she's the only quasi-functional adult in this story. And when Clement got to the house, Lee immediately got to work on being a charming host. Eventually, Clement and Jackson walked out to the barn to look at what Jackson was working on. And Jackson really did listen to what Greenberg had to say and what he liked and didn't like, probably because he was crucial to Jackson's career over the past couple of years. There was a painting on the floor of the barn that Jackson had been working on and, and what would eventually be called Something of the Past. I'll post that painting for this episode. It kind of reminds me of the Guggenheim mural, and it definitely has an automatism technique feel that Jackson had been using. It has that frenetic energy, and it combines all the psychological issues we've been talking about. Basically, it's the last five episodes on canvas. And when Greenberg looked at it, he said, quote, That's interesting. Why don't you do eight or ten of those? And for the rest of the summer, Jackson took Greenberg's advice and did just that. And there's one painting in particular from that set that I'll post that I really love, and that's uh, at Art Hole's podcast, and it's called Shimmering Substance. For my completely untrained eye, this is one of the last paintings of Jackson's where I can actually identify a pattern of something happening on canvas. At his show that February 1946, Jackson showed off his new abstract paintings and Greenberg gave them a rave review, which is not surprising considering he was part of the reason for their creation. 
Peggy decided that she was closing her gallery in 1947, so that was something that Jackson had on his mind. Although, because he was still under contract with Peggy for another year, I guess it was really more her problem than Jackson's. At least in the short term. Uh, and over the next seven or eight months or so, things were pretty controlled for Jackson. Well, I guess controlled's not the word. Uh, he was still drinking a ton, but mostly with Roger Wilcox at Jungle Pete's. And while things were going well professionally for Jackson, they weren't really going too well between him and Lee. Jackson suggested to Lee that they should consider starting a family, and Lee gave an immediate and hard no. Lee said she wouldn't have a child with Jackson, quote, ever. She blamed the drinking, but years later, Lee would say, quote, I wasn't about to have a child with a crazy person. And Jackson was destroyed by this. He wanted to have a family just like his father and his brothers, but now he felt like Lee tricked him into marriage. And I'll just say that this issue and Jackson's response and in his relationship with Lee at this point moving forward, there are reverberations. And that winter, uh, December 1946, maybe January 1947, Jackson Pollock was in his studio wearing extra layers of clothes in the bitter cold and drinking, quote, hobo coffee. And staring at a blank canvas that was laying on the ground, he took a can of paint thinned out with paint thinner, and he took a stick and used the stick to drip paint across a canvas. And immediately he knew something about this felt right, and we'll talk in a few minutes about why. And then he experimented with how to drip, using different distances from the canvas, speed, creating pools, thinner lines, thicker lines, using more or less paint, drops, and flicks. And those drip lines that are they're iconic to Jackson Pollock paintings, they're called skeins, uh, S-K-E-I-N-S. And I looked it up, and I guess they're the term for all of the winding strings in a ball of yarn. There are a bunch of theories as to how Jackson started using the drip technique at this point in his career. Some say that he spilled paint on his canvas accidentally, and some say that it was uh, ink that was dribbled out of a blotter. No one really knows for sure. But as a technique generally, painting with drips was around since a crusty art critic named John Ruskin scoffed at James McNeil Whistler for, quote, flinging a pot of paint in the public's face because he splattered little bits of paint to create fireworks in his painting The Falling Rocket in 1877. And other artists have used the technique. Uh, the Surrealists would toss paint behind them over their shoulder, and even Jackson was using drips back when he worked in Sikaros' workshop. But nobody really used it as the primary technique of creating an entire painting before. And as for where it really came from, I tend to partly agree with the Bonnikers, who said Jackson discovered the technique when he was drunk. I haven't read anything that said Jackson painted when he was drunk, mostly because he got so blackout so quickly, I don't even know that it was possible. But I do think him trying to paint with hangover shakes is highly likely. And the other theory that I buy, and this is in kind of combination with the hangover shakes issue, is that brushes were too slow and traditional for Jackson. Brush to canvas requires too much control and at least some sort of methodical process. So I don't know how truly you can let go with automation when you're still required to have enough control to touch one thing to another and move it this way and that. But by dripping paint from above, all Jackson needed was gravity to go from brain to brush to canvas. Which is also way easier when you have the shakes the morning after a bender. And again, as 100% not an expert, I think it's maybe a combination of the two. I mean, Occam's razor, everything we know about him, it, it sort of makes sense. Now that Jackson was dripping, the question is, what was Jackson dripping? And we can talk about part of this now, but we're going to have to wait until the very end to discuss it completely. And I know that sounds kind of douchey and cryptic, but believe me, it's going to make sense. The first part was from Jackson's vision, because he saw things that weren't there, specifically visual patterns. 
because for most of his life, Jackson was getting these hallucinatory spells, which he never even told Lee about. But he finally told Roger Wilcox, his drinking buddy from Jungle Pete's. Wilcox did some research, and he decided to diagnose Jackson. But fucking Wilcox, man. Wilcox tends to do this. We'll get into that more next episode, but this time he was likely right. Jackson was having a temporary malfunction of the optic nerve. It's a glitch between the occipital lobe of the cerebral cortex and what's projected onto the retina. So throughout his entire life, he was seeing, quote, swirling of lines and images and tangles of lines. But because Stella never took him to the doctor and no one in that family ever talked about shit, no one knew that Jackson was hallucinating lines his entire life. And today we know exactly what that is. Jackson suffered from ocular migraines. And it wasn't until after he started dripping, which was completely unconscious and done with automation, that he realized why he recognized those images. They were what he saw during his ocular migraines. The other aspect of his drip paintings that we can talk about now is that dripping was the easiest and quickest way for Jackson to tap into his subconscious, to put the internal and his emotions on canvas. He was too restrained by the brush before. He said, quote, I don't know where my pictures come from. They just come. And Jackson wasn't just throwing paint. He wasn't even painting on the canvas, per se. Jackson was painting and delineating objects, but he was painting the air above the canvas, and it just happened to land there. So Jackson was now operating in three dimensions with his paintings. He would just shut off his brain and sweep these aerial forms. And occasionally there would be a form that would end up on the canvas in a recognizable state, which few people actually got to see because so few people got to watch Jackson work. So when Jackson would drip, sometimes you could see that he had painted an image of a bull, a horse, all of those Western images into the air because you'd look down on the canvas and be like, is that a fucking horse? But then it would get all covered up with all the chaos and abstraction. Lee Krasner said one time that Jackson, for all of his claims of his abstraction, he never really stopped being a figurative or representational painter. The only difference was his figures existed only temporarily in the air and then disappeared on the canvas. So he didn't really abandon representational painting, he just evolved it. Jackson called this whole process, quote, Memories arrested in space. How fucking bonkers is this? And for as great and lyrical and beautiful as that is, this is art holes. I don't just want to talk about the stuff that Jackson and Lee and everybody wants us to talk about. Because we have to talk about the other side of the drips. The stuff that wasn't pre-packaged for art critics and historians. Albeit true, and we can't really talk about how true that is until the end. But we also need to talk about the real deep-seated satisfaction that Jackson got from standing over his paintings and dripping on them. This was a masculinity issue. People who visited Jackson's studio and saw him work said it was very much like watching a farmer work the land. The way he was on his hands and knees prepping the canvases was like someone planting, and him standing over the canvases was very much like Leroy working the fields. And the drip technique was very much a distribution of masculine power because Jackson was always obsessed with watching Leroy in the Wild West unzip, whip it out, and pee all over a rock, splashing urine everywhere. And Jackson was enamored with the idea and the image, and all he wanted to do as a kid was grow up and pee like a man, pee like Leroy. And because of Jackson's impotency issues, peeing for him became, quote, the ultimate assertion of masculinity, sometimes the closest he would come to sexual potency. So Jackson just became obsessed with peeing in public, and he preferred to do it in front of people so he could assert himself, and that clearly explains the Peggy Fireplace situation. But in private, his relationship with urine was quite a bit different. Because Jackson Pollock was also a constant bedwetter, especially when he was drunk, which was pretty much all the time. I can't stop going once I've started. It stinks. 
So he really had, in his mind, problems controlling the only functional part of his penis that he considered to be masculine. So by using a stick to control the flow of the paint, Jackson was finally asserting penis control and projecting his masculinity. Because of course this was going to be about his penis at the end of the day. Jackson had a show at Art of the Century in January 1947, but he didn't include any of his drip paintings. It was way too soon. He ended up showing Shimmering Substance, Something of the Past, and a few other paintings like it. And because she was closing the gallery and moving, Peggy was desperate for people to buy Jackson's paintings, and she was offering huge discounts. And she was also desperate to unload Jackson's now $300 per month contract. She finally found someone to even consider taking Jackson on and give him a show next year, in a woman named Betty Parsons. But Betty was incredibly concerned about Jackson's reputation for being a violent drunk. She had a history of dealing with alcoholism around her constantly and demanded to come out to Springs to make sure that Jackson was sober. For quick context, Betty was born into a socialite family as she had a very bougie and upper-crusty upbringing. She eventually married a raging alcoholic named Skylar Livingston Parsons, which is just a very upper-crusty douchebag name. All it's missing is the third. But Betty eventually divorced him because of his uncontrollable drinking and also because she was gay. So now Betty was free to pursue her true passions, art and women. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. But now, Lord knows, anything goes. So on that visit to Springs, because of both of their backgrounds, both Betty and Jackson were a little leery of each other. Uh, but Lee really fostered that relationship. Again, Lee keeping shit under control. And Betty finally agreed to show Jackson, but she didn't agree to give him a new contract. So Jackson got a reprieve until Peggy's contract ran out, but he was still in a deadline. In that summer, Lee got into a routine of catering to every one of Jackson's needs. She would work the phones, entertain guests, work with Betty Parsons, she cooked, she cleaned. Lee Krasner turned into the very thing she never wanted to be, a nice Jewish housewife. And also Stella, she turned into Stella, who she really didn't like. Clement Greenberg was another constant guest of the house, and Lee and Jackson got to know him a bit more, and it turns out, he was sort of a dick. He renounced Judaism because, quote, who in the right mind would want to be Jewish? And he faked a Southern accent. And he was also an ardent misogynist, which is not the best influence for Jackson, who already had that streak in him. Clement liked to date very young girls who were typically smart, but naive and willing to pay a very high price to get into his fancy art circles. That price was Clement Greenberg's, quote, sadistic streak a mile wide. One girl he dated said, quote, he was always terrorizing me. Clement was a source of support for Jackson as he prepared for what would be his first show at the Parsons Gallery. And it would also be his first show unveiling his new drip paintings. A month before the show, Jackson was turning out drip paintings left and right. He used different kinds of paints like acrylic and metallic, and he added nails, cigarettes, buttons, tacks, and gravel to add texture. And a week before the show, Jackson and Lee went into the city and stayed with Lee's sister, Ruth. You remember Ruth, the prettier sister and last stop in the Russian nesting doll situation that was Lee's weird family. A bunch of Jackson's family came out for this show, I think Stella was there, and Marvin slash Jay and his wife Alma were there. I'll post some of the paintings that Jackson made for the 1947 Parsons show. Uh, Full Fathom 5, Cathedral, and Sea Change. They're pretty cool, these are some of the very first paintings in the style for which people know Jackson today. And compared to Jackson's expectations for finally finding his voice and painting something transformative, the show did not go well. Some of the guests the opening night were just walking around, not knowing what to say. I feel like it's easy to look at these paintings in 2018 and go, oh, okay, that's a Pollock. 
But back then, people didn't really know what to think. Uh, one artist named Joe Glasgow was walking around and just saying radical, radical over and over again. During these shows, Peggy used to walk the room and try to sell paintings to people, but Betty Parsons was much more hands-off and she stood in the corner. People were afraid to ask Betty how much the paintings were. They said it seemed like she didn't want to sell them. So everyone just wandered around and gave each other like this weird nervous side-eye and slowly left. Jackson was sober the entire time, but he was very tense and nervous and he saw exactly what was happening. The show was completely bombing. And after everyone left, Jackson, his family, and a few friends walked over to the bar at the Hotel Albert. And after Jackson had three double bourbons, he snatched the hat off of Alma Pollock's head and ripped it to pieces. So there it is. What will eventually be seen as one of the greatest achievements in Western art? Not really appreciated at first. So tune in next episode to hear... I mean, look, let's be honest. I can't even begin to explain what's going to happen next episode. But I will say this, something is introduced to Jackson's life that when I first read it, I was like, fucking seriously, of all things, this, really, it's just more ridiculousness. All right, that's it. Uh, you know my pitch at this point. If you're enjoying the show, do me a huge favor, scroll down in the Apple Podcast app and throw me five stars. Take care, and I will talk to everybody soon. Out of your seat, into the street, make with defeat. If you're a PVT, your duty is to salute the L-I-E-U-T. But if you brush the L-I-E-U-T, the M-P makes you KP on the QT. This is the G.I. Man Alive. They give you a private tank that features a little device called Fluid Drive. Jack, after you revive, chunk all your junk back in the trunk, fall on your bunk, clunk. <laughs> <laughs>